0: to Alive and Powerful with Pastor Scott Morrison. Alive and Powerful is the radio ministry of Foothills Calvary, a fresh and growing fellowship in Lakewood, Colorado. We invite you to come and join us as we study the Word together, Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m. We meet at 12344 West Alameda Parkway in Lakewood, just a few blocks west of Union and Alameda. For more information about Foothills Calvary, Please visit our website at foothillscalvary.org. That's foothillscalvary.org. We hope you are blessed by today's message. Now, here's Pastor Scott.
1: Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of work, so no one may boast. Salvation. Salvation. The reality of our salvation is this. If it were dependent upon our personal actions, if we could obtain salvation through good works or by keeping the commandments or by not sinning, well, we would always be putting ourselves in danger of losing our salvation every time we stumble, every time we sin or, or fall. And this is where we see just how much God loves us. Salvation is a gift given freely to us. It's given without an exchange of anything for it. It is a complete and secure gift. This gift shows the depth of God's love and of his grace. He blesses us, not not because we've done anything, but because God is truly good. <laughs> and all the time, God is good. Where do we learn to grow in our understanding of God's grace? It's, it's all in God's word. It's in our relationship with him. In 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that a man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The validity of the Bible is key to understanding God's character and his plan for each of our lives. And originally when I was putting this message together, I'm trying to help us go through the Calvary Chapel distinctives and I'm trying to do a couple chapters every week so we can kind of, you know, have a time frame and, and now I've kind of blown that time frame out of the water because as I put this message together and I began to study grace again and, and look at the depth of it and how big it is, Well, there's no way we could handle our subject on grace today and the importance and inerrancy of God's word in the same message. And so, next week we'll do that second half of today's message, um, so you can go home before dinner. Um, But the priority of God's word will be next week's uh, message. and, And but for today, it's grace upon grace, grace upon grace. There's a story of one rainy afternoon, a man was walking with Matthew, his son, and they each had an umbrella, and it was raining pretty good, and of course, there had to be an occasional splash in a puddle as they walked, but suddenly, his son Matthew spoke up as they casually walked, Dad, I've been thinking about something. Now, when his seven-year-old boy said this, it meant he truly had been pondering some great truth, or he had a, a truly uh, profound question he wanted to ask. Well, now he was ready to either proclaim the truth or ask the question, and his dad was eager to hear what he had to say. Well, well, son, what are you thinking? He said. Well, his son says the rain. Well, it's it's like sin. The umbrella is God protecting us and letting our sins just bounce off or flow away from us. Well, the statement gave dad the goosebumps so profound from his little boy. That's really good, Matthew. Well, then his curiosity broke in. How far would this little boy take this revelation? So he asked, do you notice how the rain keeps on coming, Matthew? What does that tell you? Matthew didn't hesitate one moment with his answer. Well, we keep on sinning, and God just keeps on forgiving us. That's such a big statement for such a young man. Out of the mouths of babes. Oh, that we could have that same faith, that same understanding that a child has. You see, as believers, as followers of Christ, we're covered by God's grace umbrella. Without God's grace, None of us would have a chance of being restored. We cannot achieve anything on our own. It is only by God's grace. Psalms 145, 8 and 9 says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. Have you ever paused and, and wondered, have you thought about the amount of grace and mercy that God has extended to you personally. I know that when I make trips down to Texas with Brandon or, or even making family trips a little bit closer, going to the farm in Paxton, Nebraska, we come into these um, highway construction zones uh, where the, the speed limit drops substantially and they have added signs of fines doubled in construction zone. And some of the highway work goes on for 50, 100 miles, and even more. And at the very end of that zone, there, there's a sign that says, um, such and such construction company thanks you for your patience. I'm pretty sure every time I've driven through those zones, I was not patient. That stretch of highway in the middle of nowhere. Can you imagine the amount of patience and mercy that God has extended to you over your lifetime. I know I can't even imagine what he's extended to me. I don't deserve to be standing here in my own opinion. Who am I? Second Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Now, today's message, as I gave those scriptures to Lois, and as she's working on slides, there's a lot of different scripture references in there, and there could have been many more. The word grace is mentioned 132 times in my NASB study Bible, and the word mercy 109 times. So mercy and grace, it's in God's word from cover to cover. And when we think about mercy and grace, too quickly we turn to it and think, well, this, this has got to be a New Testament concept, but the reality is that those two words are cover to cover in the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. And what's so encouraging about the Bible is the fact that it's full of people who are less than perfect, used to fulfill his will, to accomplish his purpose. How many of you are perfect in this room? You're not, but I thought you were, right? None of us are perfect, but yet God will use us. King David, one of the best examples we have. We all know who King David is in the Old Testament. He was called a man after God's own heart, he, even though he had done some pretty awful things, some bad sins. Uh, he was caught up in lust and fornication and murder. And there were others. Abraham. He was fearful, and he lied. Sarah didn't want to wait. She was impatient. Moses suffered from stubbornness, and he was doubtful. Jacob cheated. Rahab was a prostitute. As we look at the Bible, as the Old Testament especially, we we see how the Israelites would, would do really good with God, and he's blessing them, and then they would sin, and they would rebel against God time and time again but yet god still used them to accomplish his will and his purpose further proof that god will indeed use the righteous and the unrighteous to exact his will and his creation god is faithful his promises will be fulfilled so that's just kind of a snapshot of Old Testament. What about the New Testament? We have Saul, the persecutor of Christians, converted by God to become Paul, the apostle of Christ, the author of nearly half of the New Testament. You know, Peter had a bad temper. He was a terrible swordsman. He denied Jesus. Yet the first time he preached, God used him to preach, and and about 3,000 were saved at the end of that message. Thomas was a doubter. Yet God used him to preach the gospel to India and possibly even Indonesia according to written tradition. Mary Magdalene, she was demon-possessed. Yet God graciously gave her a wonderful chance of being the first witness of the risen Christ. Martha was restless, yet God also allowed her to be among the first witnesses of the resurrection of Christ, and she also witnessed the resurrection of her brother, Lazarus. Barabbas was a criminal, yet God allowed him to be set free in exchange for Jesus. We have the repentant thief next to Jesus on the cross. He, he was forgiven and, and promised to be in paradise with Jesus. So the Bible, God's word, God's word is, is the record of God, the author and creator of everything that we know and, and experience repeatedly forgiving sinful humans and in that, a perfect God who worked through these sinful creatures and broken vessels for their own good and all for God's glory. Titus 2.11 says, for the grace of God has appeared bringing Salvation to all men. Psalms 103, 1 through 5 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Who pardons all of our iniquities, who heals all our diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like an eagle. So what do we do with this God-given grace? If God extended his love to all of those men and women from the Bible, he he most definitely can do so in our lives today. He extends that grace to each of us. We're gonna come back to that question and we get to the end of the message but knowing a, a little bit about God's grace, grace. We see as a church, we have a, a great need for grace and restoration. We talk about grace between God and man. We talk about that restoration of the relationship that was broken because of sin in the garden. But there's also a restoration to us as brothers and sisters in the Lord, restoring those who have fallen. There are indeed consequences for all of our actions, but we must extend grace. As I've mentioned in the past, I've been part of churches. I've been on staff at different denominational churches, and I've been part of those staff and and churches that just would assume, show somebody the door when they fail instead of restoring them instead of helping them and encouraging them and and bringing healing into their lives. Basically, they become a driver of consequences and judgment, and that's not our place. We can't fall into legalism like the Pharisees. I would say the same for you if you when you're praying about yourself and your own personal issue or something that you've gone through are you asking that god will will show you justice and and make things right even if it hurts you or are you asking god for grace and mercy i would say you're probably asking for god's grace and for god's mercy on your life we always ask for justice though for other people don't we Whenever we pray about ourselves, let's Lord extend grace and mercy to me. But that guy over there, would you get him? Because he needs some justice. Jesus emphasized mercy in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew five seven. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. There's got to be room for mercy, for repentance, for restoration and I've seen restoration played out more than once the last few years here at our church, and, and it started with Pastor Nate. I watched Pastor Nate work through some of those issues and things, and, and I watched him do it biblically, and I watched him restore people and encourage people, and we've done that ever since because that's what we're to do as a church. I've had people come to me knowing that they've committed some egregious sin, and they expected me to say, goodbye both men and women I've, I've had them in my home i've had them in my office I, i've had them on my couch at home i've had them at the dining room table at my house pouring out what it is that they've gone through what it is that they've done where the struggle has been and they're doing it weeping and in tears and sobbing thinking that they know because of what they've done well i'm gonna tell them okay hit the road don't come back it's probably best if you're not here beautiful creations, men and women, deceived by Satan. I agree with Chuck Smith. He says that he he gets angry at Satan as some of the best leaders are taken out. And as I read this again this week, it, it caused me to pause and ask myself that same question. Do I get angry at sin? Do I get angry at Satan? Or I even turn that question to you. How about you? Do you get angry at sin? Do you get angry at the devil? Or do you get mad at the people and the circumstances? Remember, we're fighting a battle that's not flesh and blood. It's spiritual. And it's continuous. Do you get angry at the sin that so easily entangles us or trips us up? We should. Hebrews 12:1 says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses and to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. You think about the world that we live in right now, how callous we get to what's happening, Sin just seems normal now. This thing that we thought was so bad before, because it's been made normative in our society, all of a sudden we're supposed to accept that, when really we've got to get back to what God's Word says. We know that our world and our country, our state and our city, even, is slipping down into that road, the road of sin, and calling morality actually bad. Isaiah five twenty through 21 tells us what God thinks about that and it hasn't changed. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Do you think that applies today? Are people calling good evil and evil good? They are on an increasing basis. And they're getting bolder and bolder. That's why it's important for us to stay focused in God's word and stay engaged in our faith. Satan wants to steal. He wants to kill. He wants to destroy God's creation. He hates God. And guess what? God created you. Do you think Satan loves you? No. He hates you. He hates God's creation, and he'll do anything he can to destroy it. We need to ask God personally to forgive us, to help us, and to strengthen us, to give us that ability that we would truly hate those things that are evil, that we would hate sin. God, break my heart for those things where I'm not calloused, where I don't see something and go, ah, whatever. I don't hear something and just kind of dismiss it. But may those words and may those images truly turn within us. And may God forgive us to literally hate Satan, to hate his schemes, and to hate the demons. To do this, we've got to start by taking care of our relationship first with God. Personally, God, forgive me, restore me, help me. And then after we do that, we need to immediately turn to somebody else and we need to extend that same grace to them. God, help me to extend the grace that you gave me to somebody else. Help me to bring hope to them. Galatians 6, 1 and 2 says, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespasses, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. We should all be in the restoration business. You know, my tent-making skills, my background is is construction and and learning from my stepdad, he taught me, you know, it was new construction. It was, you know, Wood Brothers Homes and, and Bainbridge and then some of these other bigger custom home builders and everything we did was new construction. New product. We followed the blueprints and the plans, you know, and it was it all fit like it was supposed to. It was awesome. But then one day, Pam and I bought our first house. It was down at Washington Park. It was built in 1911. So much for new. And then I was introduced to something called restoration or remodeling. Like it was a new concept to me. I could replace windows. I could move walls. I could build new cabinets. And this concept equally uh, equates to, to ministry. My first ministry opportunity as a youth leader, I wasn't a youth pastor yet. I was in training. It was with high schoolers. And the youth pastor that was training me said, well, well, Scott, which group of, of high schoolers would you like to teach? I had my choice. And I said, well, which ones are you struggling with the most? Which ones are the hardest ones for you to, to work with? And he told me which group it was. And I said, okay, give me them. I was very naive. (laughs) But God had a plan in that. God used me to help restore them, positioning myself in such a way that I could bring restoration using my own testimony of how God's grace saved me. And even though my earthly father was not a good example, that God's grace was there and brought restoration. But just like remodeling or restoring a home, if we want to see desired results, we have to put in the work. We have to put in the sweat and the tears and and maybe some of the blood. I remember as we're in that house built in 1911, we had pictures of, of when they first were in that house and out front there's a Model T and a horse and buggy parked right in front of our house. As I get into that, I'm thinking, okay, I'll put some new cabinets in. That'll be a piece of cake. And I'm like, oh, well, the plaster's not very level, so I need to take the plaster and laugh out, which sounds like a great idea in perspective. Looking back, not so much. Then, so the walls come out. Well, that wall's brick. Can't take plaster off that. Okay, the ceiling's got to come down. Okay, oh, look, knob and tube wiring. Now we need to rewire the house. Okay. Oh, the plumbing needs replaced. All right, we'll replumb the house now. And then we'll hang some new drywall, we'll build some new cabinets. It was a lot of hard work, but it looked really good when it was done. And it was satisfying because I did the work, right? Just don't ask Pam about how long she had to wash dishes in the bathtub. But the same is with ministry. If we want to see results in our walk with the Lord, if we want to see results as we minister to others, as we extend grace to others, we have to to do the work. We have to put in the sweat and the labor. We have to spend the time and engage. We can't just expect it to happen. You have to surrender all and you have to be all in. You have to stay focused on God's word if you want to see results. All of us in this room, or those listening on the, on the radio or on the internet, we've all been a wreck at one time or another. We all were at that place, that last moment in, in our life where we, we didn't know what else to do, but God's grace was extended. It took work, and it's taken work, for you to get to where you are today, to where you can engage in life and family and ministry in those areas that you're in today. It, it took work, and you had to maintain that. If we're going to extend grace and help to restore others, it's going to take some work. We've got to be ready for it. As we went through the study in Acts, we, we were talking about being a, a Holy Spirit-empowered ambassador for Christ. That's that's the meat and potatoes of it. It's, it's engaging in such a way that we are seen as a spirit-filled believer. And as I was going through this again yesterday, it just kind of drew me back to the spot for a moment and caused me to pause. We talk about extending grace to others. It's easy for me. I can come down to the altar, right? And, and I can be here ready to minister and I can extend grace to whoever comes down here. And, and I remember in ministry times past in altars where, where every, week, every what, two or three weeks, I would have the same person who was struggling with alcoholism, wouldn't see him at church, he'd go on a binge and he'd come to the altar and ask for prayer and ask for forgiveness. The idea is that every Sunday he came down, I extended grace to him because I knew God was extending grace to him, right? But the thing that God brought me back to in that pause, it, it means that we even have to extend grace and mercy to our own family members. Right? It's easy for us to extend grace to a stranger, but what about your spouse? What about your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, your aunt, your uncle, your cousins? Can you extend that same grace to them that you would a stranger that you meet on the street? It's hard. We're the hardest on those who are closest to us. But it's at that point that we should be extending even more grace and more mercy than we would ever extend to anybody else. You hear me? It's hard, isn't it? ask that God will use you to extend grace and mercy to your family All right. so what does Calvary Chapel believe about grace Chuck Smith says this in the book he says we believe that having been forgiven we need to be forgiving having received mercy we must show mercy having received grace we must be graceful showing and extending grace is an important part of the Calvary Chapel ministry I would add to that, it is an important part of Foothills Calvary. That is who we are. It's in our DNA. It's literally part of loving God and loving each other and making disciples. That's what we're called to do as a church. I think last Thursday or Friday, I saw a meme on Facebook, and it was funny. It, was, it's, it ties right in, and it says, Why is the gospel of grace so offensive to the self-righteous? Because grace takes the glory away from man and gives it to God. Grace, it's all for God's glory. It has nothing to do with us. As we see in the distinctives, Chuck points out a, a story of the woman caught in adultery. And the whole time we know as we read that story, Jesus was here on the planet Earth and he was teaching. Every time he would teach, the Pharisees and the Sadducees would be coming in and they're trying to trip him up and trying to discourage him, trying to get him to blaspheme God. And in John 8, Jesus is teaching at the temple. He was interrupted again by a group of Pharisees and a woman who was weeping uncontrollably. John 8, 3 through 4, it says the scribes, and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Insert dramatic music here. Dum dum dum. Right? They were all about the drama. They were all about the attack. They were all about doing what they could to stumble Jesus. The Jewish people knew that Moses was a man of God who heard directly from God. And when they wanted to use that as a tool, they used it as a tool of division, not of restoration. If they could just get Jesus to speak against Moses or contrary to those teachings, then Jesus could not proclaim that he was God. Moses said that they could get divorced. They could write a bill of divorcement. But Jesus points out that it wasn't always so. That because of the hardness of the people's hearts, God allowed them to do it. And they go right on. They go right back to Moses again in verses five and six. The law of Moses commands us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger, he wrote on the ground. What did Jesus write on the ground? We don't know. No one knows for certain. But maybe, maybe he wrote this. Where is the man she was caught with? It takes two. And according to, the, to, the Moses, to Moses, to the law of Moses, it required that both offenders be stoned to death, both of them, not just one of them. These men weren't there to keep the Mosaic law. Maybe the man was a friend. Maybe he was a fellow Pharisee. They weren't interested in, in restoration. I love how Jesus just stops and writes on the ground. They're trying to provoke him you ever have anybody try to provoke you? Do you stop and start writing on the pavement? He's quiet. He's purposeful. He's processing. And so in that, I ask you that question. How do you handle tense situations? It was interesting. Yesterday, I came in Uh, at the end of men's Bible study and there were four guys standing out there talking and I just kind of walked up and I'm listening to their conversation and they were, you know, uh, excited. They were like impassioned talking about this subject and they were talking about really how do you extend grace in some of those tense situations? That's what's kind of sparked this question and that's also what put the exclamation point on the fact that I wasn't gonna get grace and going into the word of God done on the same message. How do you handle tense situations? Do you tense up? Do you get defensive? Do you do or say things that escalate the problem? Hi, this is Pastor Scott from Foothills Calvary. I hope the Lord is speaking to you through today's message. I wanted to just take a second and invite you to join us for worship services at Foothills Calvary. We meet Sundays at 9 and 11 a.m. at 12344 West Alameda Parkway in Lakewood, just a few blocks west of Union and Alameda. If you'd like more information on Foothills Calvary, please visit our website at foothillscalvary.org. Now let's get back to our study. I pray that the Lord will continue to speak to you by His Holy Spirit. Right? We all know how our demeanor is. If we stand in a little bit and we clench our fist and we you know, furrow our brow, does that look like we're ready to talk peaceably? <laughs> no. We're ready to swing. We're ready to battle. Do you pump out your chest? Do you talk louder? Or do you do everything you can to de-escalate the situation? and glorify God, to extend some grace. Remember, it's, it's not a physical battle. It's a spiritual battle. Can you extend grace to that person? It's everything they teach you in, in, in law enforcement. You know, it's how do you de-escalate. It's everything they teach you when you get a concealed carry permit. How do you, how do you de-escalate and not ever have to draw your gun? We should be doing that as a Christian in the first place everything we can to de-escalate a situation and bring peace to it. That's the strength in being a spirit-filled follower of Christ. We need to do things that will glorify God. They continue to press, so he responds. verses 7 through 9 of John 8, when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up. He said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be first to throw a stone at her, Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the court. He knelt down and wrote on the ground some more. And it could be, and this is speculation, but it could be that he wrote the men's names and the sin that they were entangled in. But whatever was being written, it, it made them uncomfortable and they dropped their stone and they walked away. Some of them, I'm sure, that oh, look at the time. Yeah, my wife asked me to stop at the market before I get home, so yeah, I'm I'm gonna go now. Whatever it was, the conviction was there. Verses ten and eleven. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. Not much longer after he was there, and he, stood, he stands up and he extends grace to her. She was caught in sin. He extended grace. Okay, I don't condemn you either. Go. An important part sin no more what you were doing what you just got caught in stop it focus on me stop sinning i love the imagery that chuck smith gives of an accident happening things are a mess you guys have been there you've been at those intersections you've seen those collisions Emergency vehicles arrive. Usually, the police are the first on the scene, right? They assess the situation. They make sure everyone is going to be safe from that point on, blocking off traffic, making sure there's no additional injuries or accidents. And then they get the details. Who caused it? What happened, right? Who's to blame? And then the paramedics arrive. And here we've got some amazing, the West Metro Fireman. we've got amazing paramedics. You know how it goes. They, every time they get a call, they roll out the fire engine and the ambulance, right? There's a paramedic in both of those vehicles. They're there to help those who were injured. They don't care who did what. They're not there to see the blame. They minister to the bleeding, to the wounded. They're there to help. It's the same in ministry. There's two types of ministries. There are those who take the role of the police. And they, they pull out the law and they assign blame legally. They're not interested in restoration. But then there's ministries who are more like paramedics. Who, who is hurt? How can we help? How can we preserve life? And, and how can we help bring healing and put things back together? That's restoration-focused ministry. That's what we are as a church. It's about restoration. So I just read in the book of John there in John 8, the Pharisees come in with the book of law. Our law says stone her, what say you? Jesus was not interested in condemning, but he was interested in restoring. He was interested in healing. I do not condemn you either. The law came by Moses and it had a purpose. That's the old covenant. But then the new covenant came. Grace and truth came by Jesus. If you and I are to engage with those that he brings across our path, then we've got to be ready to minister in grace. In grace. It doesn't mean, though, that we are taken advantage of in that right? It's being led by the Holy Spirit, but we have to extend grace. Personally, I cannot be harsh and legalistic and judgmental, especially knowing who I was and where I came from. Who am I without God's grace, without his mercy? It's an amazing thing in ministry and Probably one of the greatest things about it is seeing people's lives transformed because of God's grace. But in that restoration, there has to be true repentance. There has to be an understanding that grace extended doesn't mean that there's consequences avoided. Guys, there's consequences for our sin. And sometimes they're hard. And sometimes they're really rough. But we made that choice. There's consequences. Those who are in sin need to see that the law is there to guide and correct. It's to bring people to Jesus. Where then once repentance has happened, they can receive grace and mercy. So everyone, we should all be seeking that restoration ministry, but with the understanding that true repentance has to happen. What is repentance? regretting sin in your life and turning from it while asking for forgiveness. The apostle Paul preached that people should repent and believe in God. There's the simplicity of the gospel message: repent, believe. But in that, their actions, their actions should follow. There should be a change of thinking and a change of action. I've been accused of having too much grace. And maybe so. There's times where I too have extended a great deal of grace, but but that person didn't change their actions and attitudes and they didn't truly repent. and, And I've paid for it in one way or another because I extended grace. But I'll do the same as Chuck Smith says. I would rather err on the side of extending grace as opposed to error on the side of extending judgment. And I'll do my very best to go after the sheep that seem to be straying. Not extending that left foot of fellowship, kicking someone to the curb. That's where we've all got to be we all have to be in the word. We all have to be spending time in prayer. We all have to be uh, seeking to be filled with the Holy Spirit on a daily basis because we engage with people on a daily basis, whether it's family in your own household or extended family outside of the household or it's somebody at the gas station or wherever you are. We've got to be ready every day and every moment so we're prepared for every situation that happens. it's so easy for us to fall into a legalistic uh, mindset so we've got to stay focused on god's word we've got to shut off the media and all that noise that's coming on around us it's not of god what does god say about it how do we apply it to our lives and then we help someone else do the same that's our charge As I'm reading in the book, he refers to reformed theology, and reformed theology has gained a great deal of ground since the book was written 20 years ago. Um, Reformed theology can quickly get very legalistic, very dogmatic on some things, and somewhat dismissive of the Holy Spirit, causing many to become a one-issue Christian. That's why we truly need the whole counsel of God. That's why next week's study and the priority of the word is so important as we go through the Bible verse by verse and chapter by chapter covering everything that God says about the life we live in his creation as one of his creation. In that we have Doctrine. We've talked a little bit about this before, and I've used the example before. We have open-handed doctrine and closed-hand doctrine. Things that, that we cannot remove, right? Things that uh, Jesus' virgin birth, God created the heavens and the earth, uh, the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there are so many things that we hold in there tightly. We hold on to those things. But then in the open hand, we have other things. We have the Reformed Church, the Reformation movement. We have uh, your view on the end times, uh, pre, mid, or post tribulation. Uh, we have so many different things: Calvinism versus Arminianism, all those things. They're, they're great. They're good subjects. They're they're in God's Word. We can discuss those, and we should discuss those as brothers and sisters in the Lord. But we shouldn't be divided because of them. Those are things that we take before God and leave. In an open hand. We don't want to get stuck on one of those issues. The sovereignty of God and the uh, responsibility of man is a hot button issue. It falls into Calvinism. But it should be held in that open hand for prayer and discussion. The Bible teaches both. In our human understanding, they're mutually exclusive. But again, I agree with Chuck Smith's perspective. If we carry the sovereignty of God to the extreme, it eliminates the responsibility of man. Likewise, if you carry the responsibility of man too far, it eliminates the sovereignty of God. So what do we do with those issues? Well, we just believe in faith. We believe in his word. I personally believe God is sovereign. I also believe I am responsible for my decisions for my choices. Yes, God is sovereign, and yes, I have free will. And I kind of laughed in first service. It's gonna be fun to hear how our small group Bible studies go when we get to this point. (laughs) It'll spark some discussion for sure. But here's the thing with these types of issues. We cannot become a one-issue Christian. We're not going to be a one-issue church unless that issue is Christ and him crucified you know, the gospel message. This really is an opportunity for us as believers to extend grace to one another. We're not always going to agree with how we see something or interpret something. But we're serving God, and we've surrendered our lives to Christ, so we walk together as brothers and sisters, and we work through it. Amen? So there's a benefit of being a Calvary Chapel, a non-denominational church, People are willing to step out and ask, well, what do you believe and why you do, do you believe it to be truth? We've, we've talked about that. That's the importance of you guys going through the distinctives and understanding. Well, this is my church. Oh, well, what's the name of your church? And, and I've heard people say, yeah, I don't remember the name of my church. Are you really going there? Well, what do they believe? Oh, you know, in the Bible and stuff. I mean, no, really. I mean, what do they believe about Jesus? What do they believe about the Holy Spirit? The focus of this study that we're doing the next few weeks as we finish it out is, is so that you know and understand what it is we believe as a church and why we believe it to be truth. And it's all backed up with Scripture. It's important for you to know that. Many of you have come from different denominations. You know what the Baptists believe or you know what the Assemblies of God believe or Presbyterians or Lutherans. What is it that sets us apart as a church? Not, not what makes us superior, but what is truly different about us as Holy Spirit-filled believers. We're not in a, I'm not in a competition with any of those denominations that we just talked about. I have friends in all of them and family in some of them. Can we focus on Christ and him crucified? Now can we as a church body, as God has planted us here, stay focused on his word and extending grace to each other? How important the given word of God is, how important it is for us to simply teach the word of God simply. Part of our DNA as a church is the ability to extend grace to each other and to those that God brings us to minister to. So back to the question I asked earlier, what do we do with this God-given grace? If God extended his love to all of those men and women from the Bible and Old Testament and New Testament, he most definitely can do so in our lives today. He has grace for you. So three things as we close. One, we acknowledge our need for grace and mercy. Two, we accept God's grace and mercy. And three, we know our identity in Christ and we share his love with others. So that first point, if we're gonna grab a hold of grace and mercy, it starts with us being humble. You want God's grace and mercy? It comes at this point of James 4, 6. He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Later in that same passage, it says, Then, therefore, humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. It's in that humility that we receive grace. We confess our sins because we know all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. We cannot meet God's level of perfection without Jesus and the grace he's extended to us. We cannot allow the patterns of the world to dictate who we are and what we're going to do or how we'll respond. We've got to remember and understand that God is in control over all things. And that brings us hope. That should help us focus on his will, accepting his mercy, accepting his grace that releases us from perfectionism and prideful rebelliousness. It's only by the Lord's mercy and grace that we're alive today. That you even woke up and could take a breath this morning. So one, acknowledge your need for grace and mercy. Two, accept God's grace and mercy. We all love our freedom. It's kind of bred into us, right? We we like to be free. And we also like to receive free things. I mean, who doesn't like free food? How about every time you go someplace, you go to a convention or something and they have free things, right? You get the bag and you walk around and you get all the free stuff, don't you? And what do you do when you get home? Throw it away. But we all like the free stuff. Give me the free stuff. But we pause if we have to pay for something. Well, I have to pay for that? Meh. I have to sacrifice for that? Meh, I don't really want that. Do I really need it? The good news is that God has offered his mercy and grace to us for free. Romans 6.23, I quote it often when we close service. The wages of sin is death, but the the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. So the Son of God has done for our behalf all that we need for salvation. We're saved, not because we're good, but because God is good. He has paid all the necessary payment for our salvation. He paid it all. God knows that not only do we love something free, but we also love something new. So we thank God for the new life that we have through what Jesus did on the cross and the fact that we get to live for him in that freedom. And as we walk with him, we're gonna continue to experience his grace and his glory. And the fact that if we're walking with him, he's there in the time of our need. He's right there. So one, acknowledge your need for grace and mercy. Two, accept God's grace and mercy. Three, know our identity in Christ and share his love with others. Where once we were children of wrath because of sin that was in our lives. Because of Christ, we are now children of God. You are are a child of the king. You, as you've surrendered your life, you are restored. His grace has been extended. We should be gratefully worshiping and thanking God, our Father, for his grace and his mercy and for his love for us. Another thing that we should be doing is continually growing in that relationship. Never stop growing. Never stop learning. Never stop opening your Bible. God desires that we extend grace and mercy to others the same way he extended to us, and that's freely. And that free gift is to be shared. And in that free gift, we bear more fruit, and we grow, and we continue to do it. It's it's an amazing cycle. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, the first part of the verse, it says, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. I'm nothing. Humble myself before the Lord. God, will you use me? Paul realized the importance of working hard for the Lord as the appropriate response to his grace, not as an effort to earn his favor. Let us, therefore, as God's chosen and beloved people, continue to do the good work he has given us, to be gracious and merciful in our judgment of others and do all those things, in truth, and in love. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your grace, that grace that you've extended to each one of us, that grace that is there for us, no matter where we're at or what we've done, and that mercy that is attached to grace. I ask, Lord, that you help us to freely and truly receive it to receive that grace. And then, Lord, help us to extend it to others. Especially those that are in our family. Especially those that are closest to us. Lord, let us extend grace to them. Maybe this morning you're here and you're interested in that perspective of grace and of maybe restoration, God takes you right where you're at. He doesn't wait for you to clean things up. doesn't matter if you've walked away and it's time to come back home or if you've never had a relationship with him. He extends that grace to each one of us. As a ministry, we're here to help restore men and women to their God-given Potential to share the reason for the hope that we have and to do it with gentleness and compassion because he has a purpose and a plan for your life. And some of you that are hearing this message today, whether you're in this room or you're online or on the radio, that you may not have that relationship with God and you're fearful, you don't have peace, you've lost hope, but we take care of all that this morning. That opportunity is there. As Paul said, as I quoted earlier, repent and believe. That's the simplicity of it. Repent and believe. God's word says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's that simple. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, if that's you in this room and that's you listening online or on the radio, I would ask you to say this prayer with me. I would ask you to pray this. Dear Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for me and I believe you're alive today. I repent from my sins. I turn from them. Please forgive me. Come into my life today and be Lord of my life. I'll follow you the rest of my days. Thank you for your grace Fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me to share that same grace and that hope with others. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer in this room, I'd love to chat with you. If you prayed it online or on the radio, you can email me, scott at foothillscalvary.org and I'll reach out to you as well.
0: has been Alive and Powerful with Pastor Scott Morrison. We hope you were blessed by today's message. Alive and Powerful is the radio ministry of Foothills Calvary, a fresh and growing fellowship in Lakewood, Colorado. We invite you to come and join us as we study the Word together Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m. We meet at 12344 West Alameda Parkway in Lakewood, just a few blocks west of Union and Alameda. For more information about Foothills Calvary, please visit our website at foothillscalvary.org, that's foothillscalvary.org.